Good morning. Uh, quick announcement. Tomorrow morning at 11 a.m., we are continuing with public reading of scripture. Uh, we will be meeting in the library lounge, um, and we've had a very gracious grant come through, so we will have Chick-fil-A for at least another year. So uh, come out. We're, we're sitting in the middle of First Kings right now, so tomorrow at 11. Uh, it's really a privilege, and I'm very excited to introduce our chapel speaker for this morning, Pastor Alex Brown. Uh, I don't usually talk about colleges and seminaries, but I often, I usually don't get to talk about colleges and seminaries in Scotland. So he studied history at the University of Dundee, which sounds way cooler when he says it. Um, he did his theology studies at uh, Free Church College in Edinburgh, which I think I said correctly. Um, he and his wife, Sarah, have two kids, Ada and Campbell, and he's as the senior pastor at Golden Isles Presbyterian Church in St. Simons, uh, Georgia. There it is. Uh, he also serves as a member of our board of trustees. They're dear friends. Will you please, please give a warm Scots welcome to Pastor Alexander Brown. Well, hello, uh, students. It is good to be here. Uh, a little terrifying at the same time, but uh, I am so grateful to have the opportunity to open God's Word with you uh, this morning. Propitiation is a word that you probably don't use very often. Uh, in fact, if you look it up in a dictionary, it probably has those Three little italicized uh, letters, A-R-C period, telling us that the word, the word is generally considered now to be archaic, a word that used to be used, uh, but really not so much anymore. But there are some words that despite falling out of common usage are so important and so packed with meaning that we really need to hold on to them. And Propitiation is one of those words. And propitiation is so important because not only does it get to the heart of the gospel and the benefits that we receive from Christ's saving work, it also gives us the shape of the life that we are called to live as Christ's disciples. Listen to how John uses it in 1 John chapter 4. At verse 10, he says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, John has just given us that incredible statement, hasn't he? At the end of verse 8, that, that statement, God is love. But now he comes back around to define his terms for it. What is for us, what does it mean for God to be love? It, it means this, that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. At the beating heart of God's love for you, Christian, is the propitiatory work of Jesus Christ. But what does it mean? Well, propitiation comes from the word 
propitious, which also, if you looked it up in a dictionary, probably has those three little italicized letters, A-R-C, telling you that it used to be used, but not so much anymore. But if you look at the definition, what does it mean to be propitious? It means to be favorably disposed towards someone. And so, propitiation is something or someone who secures that favorable disposition towards you. Now, what does that mean? Well, John is saying that in our sins, God was not favorably disposed towards us. How does Paul describe our life in sin in Ephesians 2, 3? He says that we were by nature what? He says we were by nature children of wrath. That that in our sin, the the gaze of God upon us was one of justice and, and judgment. But as Jesus Christ came into the world and bore the guilt of our sins and the penalty due to our sins, as He stood substitute for us on His cross and faced the full weight of the law's condemnation against our sin, bore the fullness of God's wrath against our sin, He so fully satisfied the law's demands that the disposition of God, we could say, was changed towards us. And now, if you are in Christ, you can have the confidence that God is only now ever favorably inclined towards you. To have Jesus Christ as your propitiation means, Christian, that you need not ever fear a frowning God, even when you sin. Now, now we could camp here and Maybe we should have, but I didn't. But, but understand that this, this work of Christ is so total that even when you sin, the disposition of God towards you does not change. His heart is one of unmitigated love towards you, a heart of steady and constant compassion towards you, even in your besetting sins. Listen to how how Thomas Goodwin puts it. He says, Christian, your very sins move God to pity more than to anger. Yea, His pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease. His hatred shall all fall and that only upon the sin to free you of its ruin and destruction, but His bowels shall be the more drawn out to you. And this as much when you lie under sin as under any other affliction. Therefore, fear not. What shall separate us from Christ's love? It's beautiful, isn't it? This is is theology that will move you to tears. What does it mean for God to love you? It means that in Christ, He is wholly propitious towards you all of the time. But notice how John continues on, and he doesn't just tell us about God's love for us, but he brings this down then to bear on how we are to love one another. Do you hear it? He said, but Beloved, 
if God so loved us, if He loved us like that, we also ought to love one another. Right? And, and, and reckon with that. You hear what He's saying? The way of life that we are to live as those who have received such rich and full propitiating love from God is to be a life that is marked with propitiosity, to, to coin a word. Or to put it in plainer terms, what does it mean to be amazed at the grace of God shown to you in Christ? What does it mean to truly sing our amazing grace? It means that your life is one that is marked by a grace for others that is amazing, a generosity of spirit towards others, a love that is even willing to bear the cost of loving its object. It's what Jesus had said to His disciples, wasn't it? John, John 15, 12. He says, this, this is My commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And it's interesting, isn't it, that, that Jesus calls that a new commandment. And that's interesting because it's, it's actually not a new commandment, is it? Right? Leviticus 19, 18 tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. But in John 13, 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So, how is that a new commandment? Well, by the inclusion of that crucial phrase, as I have loved you. With that little phrase, Jesus suddenly unpacks the command to love one another with a world of new meaning. We can, we can tell enough from the, from the Ten Commandments that to love one another is to seek the welfare and the good of the other person. You go through the Six Commandments of the Second Table of the Law and, and unpack them, you, you quickly realize that they are driving home to us that to love our neighbor as ourselves means that we must pursue their well-being and we must do everything in our power to guard them from harm. But when Jesus says, you must love one another as I have loved you, suddenly we realize we are brought now into this world of propitiation. What does it mean to love your neighbor as Christ loved you? It means that you are intentionally, favorably disposed towards your neighbor and you are, in imitation of Christ, willing to bear the cost of loving that person. And it will be costly at times. People are, people are hard to love. It's interesting how Paul constructs the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. He says the, the fruit of the Spirit is, is love, and, and I really think we ought to put a colon after that, not a comma. 
I think what he's saying there is that the, in contrast to the, to the deeds of the flesh that he has just recounted that are so self-absorbed and self-seeking and so self-referential, he says, in contrast to the deeds of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit is, is love. It's this, it's this outward-focused way of, of life, and, and so we put a, a, a call on after that. That that's the core fruit of this Spirit, that, that what is the evidence that you have been loved by God? It is that you love one another. But, but then he goes on and he defines that for us. So he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, which looks like this. It, it looks like joy and peace and, and, and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And you understand that, that all of these are, are, are horizontal virtues. He's in the midst of, of, of talking about how we relate to one another in, in Galatians 5. So, so joy there is, is, not, is, not, is not primarily joy in Christ, but it's, it's that we take, we take joy in one another, and we enjoy one another despite our differences. I remember when I was doing campus ministry, one of, the, one of the crucial things that was drilled into us at our training conferences, we had to chant it like a mantra, was encourage the good wherever you find it, and if you can't find it, look harder. Um, sometimes it's going to be hard to find, but there's something there, something in even that most irritating, annoying person that you can actually take joy in and rejoice in, and Paul's commanding you to do it. Uh, or, or think about uh, uh, goodness. Not goodness as an abstract virtue, but, but in that we do good for one another. We are displaying a generosity towards one another. That's what it means to, to love, he says. Or faithfulness. We're known as trustworthy. The, the people we love can entrust themselves to us, knowing that we will not turn around and then harm them. We're faithful people. We're trustworthy people. But notice how in that list, Paul actually gives the lion's share over to, to tackling difficulty in relationships. As Paul recounts the fruit of the Spirit, his, his overriding presupposition is it's going to be hard to love people. So, he tells us that we have to be, that the, the fruit of the Spirit is peace, what does that mean there? Not, not, not your inner serenity, but a, a pursuit of harmony within the community. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's what he's saying. And you only need to be told to pursue peace if there's something that threatens it. If there's an irritant, a difficulty that threatens to get on your nerves, it means that you are no longer pursuing harmony and peace with those around you. Or think about patience, likewise. I only need to be told to be patient with someone who is irritating me. I don't need to be patient with people that I'm getting along with, right? That's a given. I only need to be commanded to be patient when I'm tempted to be impatient. And notice how the burden lies on me, not on them. I need to be patient with that person who is testing my patience or, or kindness. One commentator said, if patience is a passive trait of love, kindness is its active counterpart. So, the active pursuit of the person 
who is in danger of getting on my nerves. The purposeful movement towards them and not away from them. Or gentleness. Again, when do you need to be told to be gentle? Only when you're in danger of being harsh. It's the restraint of anger. It's the it's the restraint of, of, of power. It's a self-denial that, that seeks the welfare of someone who is not necessarily seeking my welfare. And finally, self-control, because, because all of this runs against our base passions that are telling us to guard ourselves and our own little kingdoms. The burdens on propitiation on a propitiatory love that actively and intentionally and purposefully is favorably disposed towards that other person. A favorable disposition like that that Thomas Goodwin described of, of, of God in Christ towards us. A disposition towards another person that when we are sinned against, we are moved more to pity than to anger. That when you are sinned against, when you are offended, when you are hurt, it triggers in you a compassionate heart and not a self-protective, self-justificatory heart. Think about 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. What does Paul tell us there? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Think about Romans 12. Verse 14, what does the apostle say there? He said, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You, you understand, this is everywhere. This is everywhere in the, in the New Testament. We could even say it's everywhere throughout the whole of the Scriptures. What, what was it that Jesus said would be the, the radical mark of his disciples? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have what? love for one another. That's not easy. It comes at a cost. It means self-denial. It means putting to death those sinful and selfish urges. It means reaching out to those with whom you have no natural affinity. It means bearing the emotional cost of when they do not respond in kind. 
It means doing the work of finding something encouraging, something to be encouraged in that other person, something that you can affirm and, and take joy in. But it's costly, but it's, it's a way of life that puts the gospel on manifest display, a way of life that radiates with the heavenly love with which you have been loved. Th- think about it. Think about, think about what would happen if we, if we got, we truly got this. Imagine marriages in which husbands and wives were committed to loving each other like this. Imagine homes in which parents were were deeply committed to loving their kids like this, in which homes in which kids were deeply committed to loving their parents like this. Imagine churches in which congregations were committed to loving each other like this. Congregations in which elders were committed to loving their congregations like this. Congregations in which the congregants were committed to loving their elders like this. Imagine this place. If you, if if we we're deeply and profoundly committed to loving one another as Christ has loved us. Professors loving students, students loving professors, students loving one another. Imagine, imagine your roommate situation if you were committed to loving one another like this. What does 1 Peter 3.15 say? In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. What makes people ask you to give the reason for the hope that is in you? Only if your way of life is one that is inexplicable to them. If your way of life is one that makes no sense except in how it has been shaped and molded and defined by the gracious love towards you in Jesus Christ. This way of love, this way of love that is rooted and grounded in the love that we have been shown and which gladly and joyfully shows it to others. Let's pray. O Lord our God, how we are amazed at the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ. An amazing love that has come and and secured for us the favorable disposition of God that that we now can be confident that, that never will we face a frowning God, never will you lose patience with us, never will you lose temper with us, but that you will always have a heart that is full of pity and compassion towards us. Lord, I I pray that that would grip our hearts. I pray that You, by the ministry of the Spirit, would help us to truly internalize this glorious gospel, and that it would then shape us. Father, I think of the many ways in which I have not lived like this, the many ways in which I have 
sought to build and defend my own little kingdom, ways in which I have sought to use others for my own advantage and discarded them when they were of no further use. Forgive me, Father. Forgive us. And teach us to live with generously loving hearts that is quick to extend joy and love and compassion to those around us. Father, hear us as we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.